Now it's my great pleasure to introduce Mr. Warren Olney. He's a rock star. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer. Uh, uh, he has been of the KCRW public radio program to the point. He has also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program that ran from 1992 to 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and golden mics for investigative reporting. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you. I am sitting here with David Garrow, and I am very happy to see David Garrow. He is the author of Rising Star, the making of Barack Obama. You remember him? He used to be president of the United States. This is a 1,460-page pre-presidential biography. He began working on it in 2008. And he was, it was published uh, in 2017, just this year. Uh, he's a regular contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post. He's also author of Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He won a Pulitzer Prize for that one in 1987. He's written other books as well. Uh, and let us celebrate his presence. I brought the book in because uh, <laughs> I thought I would use it as a visual aid. Uh, when we talk about a big book, this is a big book. It is a big book, 1,460 pages plus the uh, notes and uh, the glossary and all the rest of it. Uh, and it's a very interesting book. It is really worth, uh, worth reading, uh, and, uh, it, but it takes a long time. <laughs> you did a thousand interviews for this book. Yes. You did them all yourself. Yes. Who'd you talk to? Ah, oh. the, uh, the the two most sort of unusual populations um, are um, all the people who were at Harvard Law School with Barack. Um, I probably all told did over 100, 125, 130 with people who knew him well at Harvard. But um, it's worth stressing, most folks that went to Harvard Law School are easy to find. When you're looking for folks who lived in public housing on the far south side of Chicago in 1986, the folks who were in Barack's community group when he was a community organizer back then, finding folks who don't have Ivy League degrees is a, a much more difficult people search function. Um, the other uh, big chunk numerically is um, folks who were uh, law students at the U of C who had Barack as a law teacher. Um, one thing that adds a fair amount to the length of this book um, is that I spend uh, year after year, a decent amount of time stressing that, you know, Barack's day job uh, from 1994 up through 2004 was as a law professor. Um, and a law professor at a, you know, fairly conservative, almost exclusively white law school. Um, U of C during some of Barack's time there literally had only one or two black students um, in each uh, annual law school class. Um, and a lot of Barack's 
analytical inclinations, as we saw him as president, um, come out of those classrooms at the U of C. But I don't mean to get us off way too far into the story. My You're apologies. answering the question that I asked, so uh, I can't object to that. Uh, you also talked, of course, to people that he went to school with in uh, Hawaii uh, at the Punahou School. My mother went to the Punahou School. Oh. She was born in Hawaii. Um, and uh, what was interesting, I thought, was we mentioned the issue of how many black students he had. Uh, is the fact that it really was a long time before he lived in a black community. Uh, and he, when he was at Occidental College here in Southern California, you say that he was referred to as that, that surfer guy from Hawaii. Um, and it became very important to him later in life that he had not been in the black community. Talk a little bit more about that Certainly. and how important that has been uh, to his uh, uh, career. At Punahou, which is this really elite, academically superb uh, prep school uh, in Honolulu, um, Barack in his middle school and high school years there was one of only three or four black students in a fairly large institution. Um, and both um, in Hawaii and the two years that he spent at Oxy, Occidental in Eagle Rock here, um, and when he then goes to Columbia uh, in Manhattan for his final two years of college, uh, Barack's whole friendship network is international students, South Asian, Pakistani, uh, guy from France. Um, only when Barack gets to Chicago at age 24 in 1985 uh, to start work as a community organizer, that's his first meaningful exposure uh, to black Americans um, in any uh, uh, numbers, uh, you know, greater than the fingers on our hands. So that turns out to be an extremely important thing to him in terms of his career. Before we get to it, um, I'm very interested. We all know about his book, uh, Dreams from My Father. And when you talk about the people that you interviewed over time, so many of them, a thousand of them altogether, um, it appears that in many cases he recollected or at least described his recollections in a very different way from other people. Yes. Tell us about that. I think that's one of the most important um, uh, historical findings or arguments in this book um, is that Dreams from My Father is much less a, a, a memoir or an autobiography uh, than it is a, a campaign book uh, for a, a very calculating, uh, aspiring politician. Um, by the time that that book is published in 1995, uh, Barack has uh, had his sights very consciously set on a career in electoral politics uh, for a good eight years. Uh, that's why he went to law school, uh, left community organizing to go to law school. And again and again and again in Dreams from My Father, um, he's making a very conscious effort to reconstruct his life as dramatically more African-American than it actually was. Um, and whether at Punahou, whether at Oxy, whether at Columbia, whether at his first job after college at a financial newsletter company, um, the version of his life that Barack puts forward in the book bears no resemblance to what the other people who were working with him 
carousing with him, drinking with him across that set of years, remember from their lives. So it's crucial for people to realize that Dreams from My Father is this very purposely crafted, fictionalized portrait, uh, not uh, the true confessions of St. Augustine. Have a lot of people in the audience read Dreams from My Father? So this is very interesting, I think, and uh, very important in terms of how we perceive this extraordinarily important uh, historical figure. And, and you've actually described Dreams from My Father as a historical fiction. A work and, of historical and, fiction. And you just indicated yes. it's, a, it's a political, uh, political uh, uh, drive. Now, he says that in Chicago, uh, this is after Punahou, Occidental, Columbia, he goes to Chicago, and that is, he says, when I really grew into myself in terms of my identity. What's he talking about? The close to three years that Barack spent working on the far south side, he was doing community organizing in a church-based, congregation-based organizing. Now, the network that hired him was almost entirely Roman Catholic. Uh, the priests at most of those churches were white. Uh, the congregations were, by that time, in these neighborhoods, 95% black. But those African-American Catholic church ladies are really the first American black people Barack becomes close to. Um, and these are women all roughly of an age to be his mother or older than his mother. Um, they're always treating him sort of as an elder son. But it gives Barack uh, not only an immersion into the cultural life of black Chicago, it also gives him an immersion into religious communities of faith. Um, and some of the people he became closest to uh, over that three years, um, the late Tom Kaminsky, uh, Bill Stenzel, uh, Mike Flager, all white Catholic priests, uh, Jeremiah Wright uh, at Trinity United. Um, those are ma major influences in Barack's life. And yet, you quote at least one of his, uh, well, uh, close friends as saying he didn't have a religious bone in his body. 99% of the people um, whom I spoke with um, when asked about Barack and religion, uh, took exactly that position. Um, I, I can think of two people, uh, one of whom is an Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, state senator in Illinois, or still a state, state senator for the moment, um, and then the very well-known writer Scott Turow, um, whom hmm. many of you will know. Um, Scott and Ira Silverstein are the, are the two people of all the folks I interviewed who uh, believe religion... Uh, truly was going forward in Barack's life uh, an important thing. And yet he's a very serious guy. So are, yes. are you suggesting, though, that he tried to appear religious uh, for political reasons? Yes. As a calculated uh, Yes. Effort? Yeah. Uh, joining Trinity Church, and I, I want to emphasize, I love Jeremiah Wright. You know, I come out of my background with Dr. King. One of my oldest friends, Jim Cohn, is really the founder of Black Liberation Theology. 
Um, and, and what Jeremiah did at Trinity is, is the, the real-life manifestation of, of what Jim and, and other theologians like Cornell West have, have written about the last 40 years. Um, but in the politics of Chicago, Trinity was the congregation you wanted to be in uh, as an aspiring young black politician. Um, and for all the flack that came up during the campaign about uh, the three dumbest things Jeremiah ever said in the course of his life, um, the truth was that by the mid-1990s, when Barack goes into electoral politics, into the state legislature for the first time, uh, he and Michelle aren't going to Trinity uh, very much at all. He famously um, attempted to separate himself from uh, Jeremiah Wright uh, during the campaign. Jeremiah Wright said uh, he was like a son to me. Uh, there was a big a difference there. Let's go back all the way to uh, Punahou. Uh, he had a friend uh, who um, he was very close to, uh, who subsequently went to prison. He didn't Keith. know that he'd yes. gone to prison. Keith Kakugawa. But when he got out, uh, he made contact with uh, Mr. Obama. How did Obama treat him? Uh, not very well. Coldly, distantly. Um, it, it has to be said, uh, you know, real, bluntly, real, directly, uh, that from at least 2001, 2002 forward, uh, Barack Obama has been first and foremost, 1,000% fundamentally a politician. Um, I've said a number of times publicly that, that the Barack Obama from, say, 1985, when he first gets to Chicago, up through, say, 2000, 2001, uh, when he loses the congressional challenge that he mounts uh, against Bobby Rush uh, on the south side of Chicago, up through that period, the Barack Obama you see, whether it's at Harvard Law School, uh, whether it's down in the state legislature, is a tremendously appealing, uh, compelling person, compelling voice. Um, one time he, on the floor of the Illinois State Senate, he, he gives a wonderful, it's by far to my mind his best speech ever, about being out on the back porch at their modest condo smoking in the middle of the night one evening on a weekend. And this immigrant family, uh, you know, male, female children come down the, the alley there in Hyde Park picking up cans. Um, and that's the, the life these people have to sustain themselves. And this is you know, very explicitly said in, in an immigration context. Um, but once Barack loses that congressional challenge, um, he's unwilling to give up on his dream of electoral politics, but he concludes that he has to focus much more exclusively on winning. What do I have to do to win? not what policy positions do I most like to talk about. Um, and that's the beginning of a, a transition uh, that continued up through the presidency. You talk a lot about his personal life, and you found uh, former girlfriends and others. Uh, you had access, apparently, to diaries and letters that they had exchanged between uh, each other. Uh, and uh, they're, they're, they make a lot of uh, make up a lot of the book, a conversation about these uh, these people. Two of them were like Barack Obama, mixed race people. 
Uh, I want to talk about, or I want you to talk about, Sheila Miyoshi Jagger. Jaeger. We met, Jaeger, thank you. Dutch, the Dutch. She was Dutch. Dutch and Japanese. Right. Uh, and he got very deeply involved yes. with her in Chicago uh, to the point where he actually asked her to marry yes. him. Yes. Why didn't she marry him? And, uh, uh, well, let's start there. Sure. Um, just by way of context, there are three... Uh, significant relationships uh, before Barack marries Michelle. Um, Alex McNear, um, whom he met as a fellow student um, at Oxy, uh, that was a, a sort of short, episodic uh, relationship, uh, 1982-1983. Uh, Genevieve Cook, uh, daughter of an Australian diplomat, um, uh, herself someone who had grown up all over the world uh, and identified as a sort of international expat, uh, much like Barack. Uh, Barack and Genevieve were very close in New York, uh, 1984 and 1985. Uh, Barack asked Genevieve to go to Chicago with him in the summer of 85, and, and Genevieve declined to do so, though Barack kept uh, writing to her. Um, Barack then meets Sheila Yeager um, in about May of 1986 um, within... Uh, three or four months, they're living together. Uh, they live together for uh, close to two years, and they remain uh, very much involved with each other into early 1991. Um, it bears emphasis that, um, just like his mother, uh, all of these other women in his life are almost entirely absent from Dreams from My Father. Um, there's about a two-sentence uh, uh, confabulation of about 25% uh, Alex, 25% Genevieve, 50% Sheila um, in, uh, in one paragraph in Dreams. Um, but it's, uh, it's, to me, very striking how much of his real life Barack left out of his self-narrated uh, story. And Sheila didn't marry him partly because of her father. Right. Um, Sheila and Barack, uh, it was an extremely intense relationship. Um, Sheila's parents thought that someone who was working as a community organizer uh, was really not very good marriage material for their daughter. Um, I, I do not believe it has a racial component. Um, and I should say, too, um, that... Uh, uh, Sheila's father was Dutch, her mother was Japanese. Um, her, her paternal grandparents are in Yad Vashem. Um, in the Netherlands during the war, they, they helped save a, a significant number of, of Jewish children. So Sheila comes from you know, great, great genes, I guess we could say. Um, they live a very private, almost secretive life in Hyde Park uh, from 86 to 88. Uh, the people whom Barack is working with on a daily basis, uh, only one or two of them ever met Sheila. Um, there's a compartmentalization. This might be the most important uh, concept or label to keep in mind in, in thinking about Barack Obama. There is a very absolute compartmentalization uh, that Barack uh, imposes upon his life even then as a 25-year-old. And yet, uh, you describe in some detail uh, a time when the two of them got into a screaming match 
about the subject of race. Yes. And a lot of people heard it. Who took what position? Um, those three years in Chicago are when Barack transforms himself from a fairly directionless young man who's doing way too much cocaine in New York in 84, 85, to someone who has a very intense vision of a future in electoral politics. And in late 87, early 88, Barack tells both Sheila, with whom he's living, and the other woman to whom he's closest, who never met Sheila, Mary Ellen Montez, that his dream was not simply to become mayor of Chicago, as he told his, his closest uh, male friends, uh, but the presidency. So to me, as a historian, to have two entirely independent witnesses from the same exact period of time, having truly, word for word, almost identical recollections of what Barack was saying to them, um, that's very powerful. Keep in mind, during that period of time, Harold Washington is the dominant figure on the Chicago political scene as this very high-energy, effervescent, you know, first African-American mayor of Chicago. And without question, Mayor Washington is an inspirational uh, career figure to Barack. Uh, Washington had gone to law school, gotten into the state legislature, gotten a congressional seat, uh, used that to become mayor. Um, and so when Barack leaves Chicago, just a few months after Mayor Washington's sudden death to go to law school, the decision to leave and go to Harvard Law School is the first step on the career trajectory. But my apologies, back to what Warren was focusing on. Sheila was very, very deeply in love with Barack, but after her parents' uh, rejection of, of an early marriage, it's Barack that pulls back from committing uh, to a marriage discussion. And it becomes clear to Sheila that a significant part of Barack's thinking is whether having a, a wife who looks white, though <laughs> Sheila uh, correctly says she's just as multiracial as Barack is, uh, that having a white spouse uh, was a political non-starter in black Chicago. Uh, the local state senator in Hyde Park at that time, Richard Dick Newhouse, old friend, colleague of Mayor Washington, everyone knew that Dick Newhouse uh, had a ceiling, a political ceiling, uh, because his wife was white. That was part of the political culture uh, of black Chicago throughout that time. Here is a quote. Um, I believe this is somebody quoting Obama. It's not from Obama himself. The lines are very clearly drawn. If I'm going out with a white woman, I have no standing here. Asif. Uh, Barack's closest male friend, uh, his first two years in Chicago, Asif Aga, who's a, a very well-known uh, linguistic anthropology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Asif was part of the sort of Pakistani diaspora network of, of young men um, who'd been Barack's closest friends uh, starting at, at, at Occidental here. Um, and uh, uh, that's Asif. I mean, Asif was the person who introduced Barack to Sheila. Uh, she was, they, they were grad students together uh, at the U of C. Now, 
we've heard some things, if, for those of you who haven't read this book or aren't aware of, uh, or weren't aware of until now, uh, of what's in it. Um, what I think is really quite astonishing is that Barack Obama read the first 10 chapters, which is substantially the book up until the uh, presidential campaign. Right. He read it. Yes. What did he think of it? <laughs> we, uh, I, I spent a total uh, of eight hours with him at the White House um, on three different days uh, between April and December 2016. Uh, but in the ways of Washington, these were officially off the record, so they were not tape recorded. Uh, I'm sitting there with a big yellow legal pad taking lots of notes, and I've still got the legal pad. Um, after our first conversation and before the second and third ones, Barack, uh, I, I delivered, had delivered to Barack, the, the whole manuscript in TypeScript. And across uh, like July, August, September of 2016, he read it page by page and marked it up. And then uh, uh, the first long Sunday afternoon was in October, and we did chapters one to four, and then after the uh, November 16 election in early December, almost a year to today, might actually be a year to today, um, again on a Sunday went back and, and went from chapter five through chapter 10. So we're sitting there at the little dining room just off the Oval Office, and Barack's got the manuscript in front of him, and he's turning the pages, and whenever he's marked something up, he stops and looks at it and says, okay, here's what I wrote here. Um, so that's about, that's a total of about six and a half hours of going through the manuscript together. No bathroom breaks. <laughs> so how did he feel when you said that his book oh, that's was a, a historical fiction? Right, that's a, see, now I, I, what are you I, saying about that? I, well, see, I gotta, in the ways of D.C., I, I can certainly say that uh, historical fiction uh, were words that were uttered. Uh -huh. Um and I, I am not in any way surprised by that. Um, if I can say this without it being too circumlocutious or wordy, <laughs> the impression I came away with is that when someone has written up uh, a version of their life story, um, you know, at that point, you know, 20 years earlier, they better remember or they remember better and remain more attached to the version of their life which they wrote rather than the version of their life that they actually lived. I love the I, I, at, well, I know at one point, hey, I can say this. I can, at, one point, at one point on my yellow legal pad in the right-hand margin appears DFMF, Dreams from My Father, DFMF equals Bible, <laughs> written contemporaneously. Well, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe soon after <laughs> historical fiction had been raised. I'm so glad you used the word uh, circumlocutious, which is a wonderful word. And I think what you're saying is this was off the record. Right, yeah, yeah. You can't answer that question. Well, I, can't, I can't answer by quoting him would uh, be the correct interpretation. Was he unhappy? Uh, he was unhappy about... Uh, some number of particulars, but they weren't uh, what you or I, m most of the time they weren't what you or I would expect. Hmm. Um, 
they were disproportionately focused on things where I was contradicting and correcting dreams from my father. It's worth, it's worth say, noting for people here who've never read dreams, dreams really ends uh, in 1988. Um, so that's why we spent more than half our time covering his life only up through age 27. Um, everything from when he starts Harvard Law School forward, um, he had much less of a markup because it didn't uh, fail to match up uh, with his own written version. It's safe to say, though, it seems to me, this is not an authorized oh, biography. Oh, no, no. <laughs> uh, we have not talked at all about Michelle. Right. When did he meet Michelle? Uh, under what circumstances was he still seeing Sheila right, right, at the same right, time? Right, right, yes. <laughs> Overlap concept. <laughs> Um, yes, there's overlap. Um, Barack first meets Michelle Robinson um, in the early summer of 1989 um, at Sidley & Austin, a big Chicago law firm, uh, where he goes to be a summer associate after his first year at Harvard. And Michelle, who had graduated Harvard just before Barack got there, um, is his uh, assigned supervisor for the summer. Um, they uh, are involved from that point forward. Um, they get engaged in the uh, uh, summer of 1991, right after Barack finishes law school, um, and then they're married uh, at Trinity Church in October of 1992. Uh, they joined Trinity Church together in February of 1992 so as to have a church wedding. I don't want to uh, get salacious about this, but um, or 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 too—that's uh, the wrong term—too uh, cynical about it, or, or suggest that that's what's involved. But uh, she was the first black woman, right, that he went out with. Yes, I I believe that to be true. Yes. In any meaningful way, yes. So was there a political aspect to his decision to date a right. black woman? I think there's no question that Barack's attraction to Michelle, even in 1989, was entirely genuine. But there was no doubt a political component in his previous decision that he could not go forward in life with Sheila Yeager. Here is a very interesting uh, quote attributed to Michelle. I'm not sure she said this to you. Did you talk to her? No, that was not. not they okay. did not allow that. That's what I thought. Um, that she saw him as two people and said that he transformed himself from that guy in the office. Right, right, she right. Knew, uh, into another person with folks like me who grew up with me, felt comfortable in his own skin, and could touch people's hearts. She thought he was black. She, in that quote, is referring to the first time she witnessed Barack uh, in a far south side church doing a training 
uh, with Gamaliel, the, the network that had basically employed him from 85 to 88, in which he kept uh, doing work for uh, off and on uh, during those three years at Harvard. So uh, for Michelle in that context, who saw him as this Hawaiian Harvard, to see him for the first time uh, in the sort of Southside African-American neighborhood in which she had grown up her entire life, to see that Barack could be at home in a church setting on the far South Side, that was revelatory to her, that Barack was comfortable in that world because of his three years uh, pre before Harvard. Was he acting? No, not, well, all organizers, all, organi all community organizers have a theatrical component to them. Uh, Monday night, I, I did a very nice event with all the Gamaliel organizers in Chicago, and that's why this is in my mind now, 48 hours later. Um, yeah, organizers are trained in, in how to present themselves to, uh, to people they want to mobilize. Was he learning to be a politician? Um, Barack's learning curve uh, as, a, as a political candidate uh, begins in 1995, and as Michelle, among others, uh, uh, highlights across those years, it's a very slow evolution, uh, and an evolution that's, that's uh, quite unsuccessful even as of 2000. Um, in Chapter 9, which Warren, in all honesty, might not have really gotten to, which is the 2003-2004 <laughs> Senate race, by the time... This book is 1,400 pages long. I want you to... Yeah. <laughs> See, it's right here. It's right here. On the um, by the time that Barack is speaking to black congregations in, say, early 2004, uh, when he's been in the Senate race for a year already by that time, um, people, Ed, Ed McClelland, a, a very good Chicago journalist, uh, Ed's the best example of this. Um, Barack Obama is a vastly better black political candidate in February of 2004 than he had been in February of 2000. Okay. Uh, you said I didn't read chapter 9. The last paragraph of chapter 10... <laughs> right. <laughs> Is, uh, is, is, is very interesting and uh, has a quote uh, about how he willed himself into being, that he was an invention of himself attributed I think to, this is the epilogue. Is that, um, are you sure? Go ahead, go ahead. Go oh, ahead I go thought ahead. it was in chapter 10. But okay. Anyway, it says, uh, it, you, you conclude that right. while the crucible of self-creation had produced an ironclad will, the vessel was hollow at the core. Core, Yes. Yes. That's a pretty rough yes. conclusion. Yes. The, I mean, the, the presidency is only about 20 pages, the final third of the epilogue. Um, so then you're, you're, it's an important point that you make that I, that I was wrong to say it was well, at, at the end of chapter 10 because Barack no, he Obama didn't wrote, read chapters 1, one through 10. 10. Yeah. He didn't read the epilogue. Exactly. The epilogue mm -hmm. covers only the presidential campaign. Right. Of, chapter 10 ends with when Barack announces for the presidency. Right. The epilogue, which is relatively brief, covers the campaign up through the presidency. Um, 
both in the course of the Senate race and especially in the course of the presidential race, Barack goes back on at least three of the core principles that had been his uh, defining policy stances um, back in Illinois. Uh, Barack's number one emphasis when he's first in the state legislature in the late 1990s is campaign finance reform and how fundamentally evil uh, the plethora of private money in politics is. Uh, Come 2008, uh, Barack ditches that position uh, in order to have a financial advantage over John McCain. Um, And this is to my mind, think about where we are now with money in politics. This, in retrospect, is a very important moment. Um, many of the people in Illinois who had latched on to Barack very early, former Senator Paul Simon, the, the bow tie Paul Simon for folks of my age who can picture him, um, Barack's emergence as a well-known progressive in Uh, Illinois state politics, was really grounded in his being the Springfield champion uh, for this fundamental uh, campaign finance reform set of measures uh, that Paul Simon and the other sort of Illinois goo-goos, if any people know that phrase, uh, had had been trying to put forward. Um, Similarly, um, in the early stages of uh, his emergence as a U.S. Senate candidate, in 2001-2002, Barack is an incredibly outspoken critic of the intelligence community, the CIA, Guantanamo, the Patriot Act. Um, uh, Barack, in the Democratic uh, Senate race in 03-04, is very insistently contrasting himself with some of his opponents, Dan Hines, Blair Hull, and saying, I'm the U.S. senator who's going to take a you know, tough, aggressive attitude uh, towards the intelligence community and the intelligence policies of the Bush Justice Department. Well, as I think most everyone in this room would realize, that's not the Obama presidency we ended up with. So what I'm doing in that final concluding paragraph is really contrasting how the policy record of the Obama presidency uh, contrasted contradicted so starkly, so powerfully, so much of how Barack had first defined himself as an emerging figure in Illinois politics. Could you say that he, given that he was not all that experienced as a politician, that he defined himself from an ideological standpoint and then learned from the practice of politics and the practice of government that you can't always put your ideals into practice. Okay, thank you. Uh, now the third, I had, I had said uh, uh, two or three minutes ago, I'd said there were three. So there was a third. Third, um, and I, I didn't get to it. The very first candidate questionnaire Barack fills out in 1995 uh, when he's running for the state senate says, I endorse gay marriage. Uh, that lasted about eight months. Um, and as I think many people in the room very clearly remember, uh, Barack was unwilling to take ownership of that position, written in his own hand, uh, until Joe Biden uh, g- happened to get out there first. 
um, and particularly among uh, the gay community in Chicago, um, there was a lot of ambivalence uh, about Barack during those intervening years. Uh, one of his uh, competing uh, Democratic opponents in the primary, Jerry Chico, uh, ran to Barack's left in 04 as a champion of, of gay marriage. So prog- uh, one progressive Democrat thought he could do it. Was Abraham Lincoln absolutely consistent in uh, the things that I, he said and the things that he did and the... Uh, I have no... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I frankly have really probably never read a Lincoln biography um, because I'm, uh, I'm almost entirely a, a sort of post-1945 person. Um, I mean, keep in, keep in mind, um, you know, a good 20 years of, of my life as an academic historian, uh, you know, was doing, uh, you know, these three big books on the Southern uh, freedom struggle, um, and then doing a, a big definitive history of, of Roe v. Wade, uh, Liberty and Sexuality, which is not quite as thick, thick as that, but, you know, would, would be equally, equally good at holding your door open. <laughs> okay, you don't have to ask, answer about Abraham Lincoln, but the point is that uh, politics uh, changes people, and often in the way that I suggested, that they become pragmatic, that they turn away from their idealism because I think, and when you talk about the need to get elected, you can't do anything if you don't get elected. Right. So you do what it takes to get there. Um, did he, did he yeah. do that just like anybody else, or if, if, was he more calculating about it? Was he because he was so smart, because he did so well, because he was? Uh, we haven't had a chance to talk at all about Harvard and the and the right. law review, but uh, he's an extraordinary person. He, no he's an extraordinarily bright person. Yeah. Um, the Harvard period, chapter five of this book, uh, does merit some mention, um, because, and I really like to stress this in terms of the importance of, of, of what Barack's three years in Chicago represented, everyone who knew Barack as of, say, July 1985, when he's leaving Manhattan for Chicago, thought he was this perfectly nice guy, but in no way remarkable. Fast forward three years to, like, end of August 1988, uh, when Barack and all the other beginning 1Ls show up at Harvard Law School. And from day one uh, of that three years, everyone who meets Barack at Harvard, fellow students, professors, you name it, thinks this is a remarkable person whom they'll all be reading about in subsequent years. So the difference between the Barack of 85 and the Barack of 88 is, to my mind, in, in how people perceived him, uh, just stunning. And his performance at Harvard, um, academically, uh, you know, was truly superb. Um, so when, and one of the reasons that I spend a lot of time in this book on Barack's educational experience from Punahou, where he had really college-level classes as a high school student, um, on through Harvard, on through his, his teaching experience and incredibly high, you know, teacher evaluation marks at the U of C Law School um, is, is to again and again underscore 
uh, that the sort of affirmative action critique of Barack um, as this guy who happened to get pushed forward in life just because of his complexion, uh, that's just fundamentally false. This is someone who uh, was a real all-star intellectual performer uh, the whole way along. Uh, one of the other fictions in Dreams from My Father is how uh, inaccurately self-deprecating uh, he is in that book trying to make himself into a fake black tough guy. A teenage hood. Right. Thug, he says at one point. <laughs> uh, that came up in a certain conversation, too. Um, uh, whereas everyone at Punahou remembers him as the, you know, happiest person in the class. Um, Tell us how he got to make that speech at the Democratic Convention. Um... One thing that Chapter 9, which is the story of the Senate race, um, I hope does, is uh, it highlights how maybe the two most important people um, in that campaign, uh, in, in helping Barack craft his presentation of himself uh, as an a incoming U.S. Senator, uh, were John Cooper, K-U-P-P-E-R, uh, a political partner of David Axelrod, um, and Barack's campaign manager, uh, Jim Cawley, Kentuckian, white guy. Um, and neither Cooper nor Cawley are the sort of self-promoter types who draw a lot of attention to themselves. I think you all understand the contrast I'm drawing. Um, Pete Gian Greco, who was the direct mail consultant on the Senate race, Jimmy Cawley, um, Pete Gian Greco, they're doing the outreach to John Kerry's presidential campaign uh, to try to get the Kerry campaign interested in giving Barack a, a prominent space at the 2004 uh, Democratic National Convention. Now, the Kerry campaign staffer, um, who happened to be assigned to sort of lining up the speakers, was an old-time Massachusetts uh, political staffer uh, named uh, John Corrigan, Jack Corrigan. Um, and Corrigan's mulling the choice, um, and he happens to meet up one day in Boston with a former colleague who'd also worked on the 1988 Dukakis, people old enough, uh, presidential campaign. And Corrigan says to this former colleague from 1988, well, you need to give to the Kerry campaign. And she says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm giving my contributions to my old friend Barack. And so he says, oh, you know Barack. Well, the colleague from 1988 whom he's talking with is a woman named Lisa Hay, who had been the number two on the Harvard Law Review uh, the year that Barack was, was president. She was treasurer. Um, and both Lisa and her husband, uh, Scott Smith, um, had always remembered how when Barack spoke at the Law Review annual banquet at the Harvard Club, in downtown Boston, that his remarks were so compelling that the African-American waiters who were supposed to be serving the guests all stopped to listen to Barack rather than serve dessert. <laughs> so it is Lisa's memory of how compelling a speaker Barack was 
even 16 years earlier, 88 to 2004, that really seals the deal in persuading the Kerry campaign that this unknown young candidate from Illinois uh, is worth making uh, the keynote speaker. So it matters when you start, and it matters who you know. Well, it, 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 and it matters, it matters how good you are even when the camera's not sure, on. Sure. Uh, I believe it has been, is, the time has come for questions from oh, you wow. folks in the audience. I hope somebody will ask about Michelle, because I haven't had a chance to uh, ask much about her myself. The transformation of President Obama from 85 to 88, what inspired that? Here's the background on that. I was at Columbia with him. I played basketball, right? majored in poli-sci, was a political activist. In fact, you mentioned my name in the book. Yes. I think we talked by, the phone, by phone, correct? No, we did not. We we talk, I talked to, to another author who you quoted, David okay. Marinus. Right, right, right. Yes. right. So nobody at Columbia knew him. Correct. And everyone called me to find out about him. And I said, I remember seeing him vaguely but nobody knew him. How do you go from that right. to president? What you say about how even black students at Columbia, uh, 81 to 83, uh, I probably spoke with about 14, 15, and I'd say three or four out of that 14 or 15 have, you know, have anything close to a clear recollection of him. Part of it is that he's living off campus. Um, part of it is that under Columbia's regime of distribution requirements, he was taking a fair amount, having to take a fair amount of classes with sophomores and freshmen, not juniors and seniors. Um, it's the experience in Greater Roseland, Chicago South Side. It's the experience of trying to encourage people to speak up in behalf of their own interests. You know, that's what organizing is. And Barack finds that calling of trying to energize, mobilize people, he finds that so compelling that it's the first time he finds any real purpose in life. He didn't have a real purpose when he graduated Columbia, when he's working at Business International Corp in Midtown in uh, 84, 85. And I mentioned the Harold Washington uh, inspiration earlier. Um, the real conclusion Barack comes to in 87, 88 is that organizing doesn't do enough for people that that's why I have to become a politician, because if you're mayor of Chicago, if you're Harold Washington, you can really help people bring about significant change in their lives. So it's that immersion in uh, 85 to 88, that's what I'm trying to answer, um, and that's why I think chapter four is, is really the, the crux of this book. I'm curious about why Barack chose Occidental uh, and a little bit about his time here in the city. He didn't get into Stanford, Swarthmore, um, several others. Um, uh, one of his uh, 
teachers his senior year at, at Oxy, a, a local uh, attorney in Honolulu, was an Oxy uh, alumnus. Um, uh, someone from uh, the Oxy uh, admissions office visited Punahou on a recruiting trip. Um, Barack had some dreams, false dreams, that he was a good enough high school basketball player uh, to play in college. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a default result that he ends up at Oxy. Um, Oxy at that time has a significant African-American student presence, but almost all of those African-American students are from greater LA, from South Central. And so someone like Barack coming from Punahou, um, another uh, uh, impressive uh, young African-American man who was coming from Boulder, Colorado, they didn't really fit in with the folks from South Central. Um, instead, in part because who one of his uh, freshman year roommates was, who was Pakistani, uh, went to school in London, uh, Barack's friendship network becomes these Pakistani guys. Um, and he, on you know college, you know college breaks uh, over the summer, um, he's going off doing jaunts with uh, the various Pakistani friends. Um, Oxy at that time was a very small, incestuous place, um, and most of Barack's close friends were two years or so older than, than he was and were graduating. Um, so with his friends leaving, uh, feeling it was too small, um, there'd been a very uh, visible article in the Oxy student newspaper about someone who had transferred to Columbia and thought it was like, you know, going to Whole Foods for classes, um, if I'm not being in poor taste. Um, so uh, he applies to Columbia, and, and uh, Columbia that year is eager to get a lot of transfer students. So he gets in. Um, uh, you know, it, as, I, as, I, as I said earlier, uh, prior to Chicago, uh, this is a, you know, a, a fairly typical uh, young man in his early 20s who's floating along. If Obama was so calculated, how did he let something like the birth certificate issue become such a big problem? I'm totally with you on that. Um, and he still hasn't released his transcripts. Uh, we had that conversation. Um, if, I mean, I think it was political malpractice. If they had released the birth certificate way earlier, it would have gone away very quickly. Uh, similarly, I mean, the only reason they have never released his transcripts, and I've had this conversation with the former White House counsel, who was my intermediary, was that Barack, his final semester uh, at Columbia, uh, took an elective sociology class entitled State Socialist Societies. Oh, wow. That's, that's, of course, where you got indoctrinated, right? <laughs> well, I, thanks to uh, uh, another student who was in that class with him at Columbia, um, I got the syllabus. So the actual reading list for state socialist societies was intensely critical, no surprise, of the Soviet Union, of the People's Republic of China. Uh, it was uh, like Mila Vangelis, some of you guys know the literature. 
Um, so the notion that anyone with a college education would think that having taken this class was somehow Barack's indoctrination into socialism, uh, you know. But um, this overly protective attitude that we never give out information, uh, that's what led them to prolong the birth certificate issue years longer than, than should have been the case. I mean, similarly, uh, they should have handed out the transcripts. Listening to you tonight, I get the feeling that you're very cynical about Barack Obama. Yes. Is That's this the correct. case? I'm sorry? Is this the case? Yes. Why? Because of how, as president, he was, to my mind, uh, so much less progressive than who he had been back in Illinois. Now, it bears uh, mention uh, that I'm most easily categorized as a Bernie Sanders type Democrat. Um, for a good number of years, I was a member of DSA back in the Mike Harrington, Bogdan Denich era. Um, so I'm, uh, and say on, on healthcare policy, having lived in Britain for six years, love the NHS, I'm actually well to the left of Senator Sanders on, on health care. Um, now, having written a book on the FBI some years ago and having been threatened with criminal prosecution by the Department of Justice for naming informants, um, I'm a great fan of Ed Snowden, uh, and I'm not a fan of Justice Departments that try to indict reporters. So a lot of my huge disappointment with Barack as president um, was the way in which the Obama Justice Department continued uh, the national security uh, policies of the Bush administration, and as I think many people here are quite aware, um, you know, did more criminal investigations and criminal prosecutions of whistleblowers uh, and journalists who were working with whistleblowers than any other administration in American history. Yes. But, but that was after he became a president. And right. You spent eight years, as I remember, on, on the book. So did you have that conclusion about him from the beginning? No. Or is this something that developed over time? Oh, it very much. Were you looking for evidence of your disappointment when you wrote the book? Um, no, my disappointment emerges over the course of time. Um, remember how Greg Craig and Cassandra Butts, who's passed away, who was in many ways Barack's, one of Barack's two closest friends at Harvard, remember how Greg and Cassandra get thrown out of the White House counsel's office by Barack and Rahm Emanuel because they're trying to close Guantanamo for real. Um, I think, let me, let me try a sort of uh, say something to maybe try to draw several things together. I think the experience we've all had the last 10 or 12 months, you know, unexpected experience we've all had this last 10 or 12 months, very, very, unsur very unsurprisingly uh, leads people to look back uh, more warmly uh, than would have been the case if, if the outcome 13 months ago had been different. How much of uh, Barack's transformation um, and his presidency do you think has been obscured or blurred by our sort of national history um, towards 
uh, people like Barack who seem to be in between two worlds. I, I was chatting earlier um, with someone here um, about the sort of bizarre antipathies towards Barack that, that we saw during the first campaign, during the second campaign, over the course of the presidency. Um, I never fathomed why there was so much false fixation on is he really Muslim? The anti, I mean, the anti-Muslim, and and needless to say, the birth certificate piece. But the the percent of the population that wanted to perceive him as a foreigner, as not American, and I let me stress, I do not think this is simply reducible to, to quote-unquote race or color. Um, but keep in mind, uh, and I guess, I guess this is a good point to try to end on if I can say this correctly, that the last 13 months again uh, highlights how, you know, to me as a political historian, uh, American public opinion oftentimes, lots of times, uh, at a mass level, gets th huge numbers of things fundamentally wrong. You know, the, the number of people who still think that the government assassinated President Kennedy or that the FBI assassinated Dr. King, not, you know, some small network of racists or, you know, people who believe in spaceships. Um, I think there's a deep weakness in the American people in American public opinion, going back to our friend over here who asked if I'm cynical, um, I think there is a deep uh, weakness uh, and a vulnerability to ignorance uh, in American culture, in American public opinion, uh, that we continue to see and that, and that I fear we will uh, see again uh, uh, next uh, Tuesday, December 12th uh, in Alabama. And I, I, and I, and I hope I hope I'm not the only person in the room who's contributed to Doug Jones. Before I we feel close, like, uh, we just got started. I'm so sorry. That's the last question. Before thank, we, th thank you all. David Garrow, extraordinary person. Thank you, thank you so much.